All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Good to see you. Uh, it is great to see your faces this morning. I want to welcome you on this Sunday, and in particular, we're kind of rallying around this idea of the Sanctity of Life weekend. It is something we talked about last weekend. So excited to see the things you're bringing. The resources out on that table today have been stacking up, and just want to thank you for your partnering with with Trinity Church, with our leaders, but really being able to say, even to our community, God, we value so much this precious thing you've given us called life. That's kind of what today is all about and this weekend. And, and we know that in the midst of even things in our country where we're polarized at times about issues, especially like that of abortion, I want to say I love that as Trinity Church, we would say there's a lot of things we could do. There will be people on corners protesting today and holding signs. That's fine. But I would love us to be a people that say, rather than cursing the darkness, we want to light candles. And by you bringing things today that we're going to give to the San Bernardino Pregnancy and Family Center, those will be delivered this week. That is going to be such a great expression of your love and your care for people who need it and who need help. So thank you. I'm excited about that and excited about your response to that. Well, we are in it. We began a series last weekend called 2020. If you have a Bible, we're in James chapter 1. James is pretty deep into the New Testament, comes after the book of Hebrews. If you can't find Hebrews, I'm of no help to you, okay? But it's, uh, it's deep in there. We're, we're, just gonna, we're not looking at the entire book of James in this series, just chapter 1, and we're going to move further into this. We kicked that off last weekend. We we're going to take another step. If you have, uh, take a look inside your worship folder. There are um, notes for the message, but you'll notice that our home group notes are connected. These are mine. I've been writing all over them because I'm excited as our home group kicks back up this week um, together. But this is there for you because they're pretty handy. They're right next to each other as you're going through your time with your group together this week. I also just wanted to encourage you our take 10. Take 10 I can, there's a lot of T words. Take 10 Trinity cards. Um, we had those not only stuffed in your program last week, we'll have those again, but they're also at the different points of entry as you came in today. This is a prayer initiative. This is us saying, God, you have strategically placed us in a relational world, and these are people that we want to be consistently praying for. I filled mine out last weekend, hopefully like you did when you had it stuffed in your program. And then as you take time then throughout the week, we're just giving you a focused range, think of 10 minutes praying for for people in your world who already know Christ, those who don't, and just saying, God, would you be on the move in them? What we're excited about over the course of the next few weeks is being able to hear the stories. What happens when we take very seriously the, the aspect, the role within our world changer perspective, world changer purpose, and we begin to pray for these people with diligence and begin to see God do things? Things that we have no other explanation for. We wouldn't know, God, how did you organically bring up that issue in the conversation? God, the thing that has been so challenging in their lives, you're using it to point them to you. God, how could, well, it's something to do with the way that you're praying for them. And so we want to see how God blesses that aspect of our obedience and our engagement. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't engaged this yet with us, it's not too late. Our hope is that over the course of these next few weeks, even if you are what we might call a late adopter, that you get on board while we're in this initiative and get to see what God is up to. So here we are. Uh, 2020 is the name of this series, James chapter 1. James 1 addresses some very, very significant, widespread 
issues that we face. Last week, we dove into the idea of purposeful pain and asking the question, God, is there anything good you're up to, anything valuable that you're wanting to do through painful situations in our lives? And and what we're going to find in this series is James is going to provide us a lot of clarity. But what James isn't going to do is try to solve the problem for us. He's not going to try to take away the trial. He's going to say, here's perspective in the middle of it so that you know how to follow God through it and what God is after in your life. And so I want to say that as a disclaimer as you go into it, that you realize there's value, but it might not be the value you and I would initially look for. I'll never forget having conversations with my senior pastor at HDC, and and I would tell him, like I told you, this was so helpful to me when I realized that God was purposeful in my pain. And he would tell me, but Todd, at the end of the day, we just want it to be done. And I agree. We typically are that way. But James is going to teach us that there's some great lessons that he wants, that God wants to teach us through it. I want to ask you this question to get your mind kind of thinking this way today. Think of this. Think of the time when you were growing up in your home, maybe in that preteen to teenage range. Some of us, that's like now. You guys right here, you're good. You don't have to think hard. But for, for others of us, those are like cobwebs way back, okay? But do this. Think of a time in that very, um, you know, foundational season of your life, think of a time that you went through something really challenging. Maybe you had some really sharp conflict with someone. Maybe it was a time that you were really questioning some issues about your identity and your worth, and just like, God, I don't even know. My life makes sense. Big ticket issues. You were going through those at that season of your life, and the interesting thing is about this particular time you never once bothered to ask one of your parents about help or wisdom or counsel. Now, for some of you, you go, Todd, that was every time. I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, I just, I didn't want to talk to my parents about stuff like this. I didn't think I could. And there could be a host of reasons why, but especially for those of us who would say, no, there were times when I would say, mom, dad, I don't know what to do or, or how to navigate this. But think of a time with clarity that you said, there is a, a big challenge I'm facing, but I don't want to talk to them. And as you kind of burrow down a little bit, the real basic question I would ask you is, why not? Why would you not want to seek the advice and the counsel and the insight of someone who's walked the planet infinitely longer than you have, has much more life experience, and would really be able to be helpful to you? Why would you discard that kind of wisdom? And the simple answer, because you didn't want to have to be bound to what they said. Right? You ask a parent, hey, I don't know how to navigate this relationship or I don't know how to deal with this issue I'm facing internally. Well, then they begin to give you counsel and then you realize they're going to expect you to do something with this. Right? You're bound now. They're they're giving you an answer that then, and then later on they would rightly say, "I, I, I give you advice. What are you doing? So, in order to not have to worry about following through, you just kept silent. Now, If you can remember a situation like that when you were a teenager now, many of us have moved forward and we're parenting or have parented teenagers. And now when you get into that role of the parent, 
and you realize that the same way, there are things that young adults are walking through and they don't want to ask us. They don't want our input. And it's really hard to not take that personal. But then as you unpack that, let's say that same truth applies to them that applied to you. They don't want to ask because they don't want to be bound by what you say. Now all of a sudden, it doesn't take long for you to consider the heartbreak. I could help you. I could help you avoid the pitfalls that you're going to walk into if you don't do this wisely. That's the heartbeat I want you to hear from the very beginning today that is the heartbeat of God. Because as God loves us as this good, good father that we rightly sing about, we need to lean into this idea that the maker of heaven and earth knows more than we do. His ways are higher, his ways are wiser, and we would be good to ask him when we're confused, God, what should I do? But it's when we're quiet, when we don't want to be bound by the answer he would give that obviously breaks the heart of a God who says, I could be so helpful to you. And so it's today as we work further into James chapter 1, I want us to begin with that heartbeat, God is for you. God wants to help you, and if you would see his wisdom as truly what it is, the maker of heaven and earth who knows infinitely more about your life than you ever could, maybe today we'll approach him anew with the next challenging situation that we walk into. So today what I wanted to do, I'm I'm trying to make this a staple because it's very helpful for me in preaching, but I think it's helpful for us as far as what do I do? I'm giving you the big idea, the now what at the very beginning. It's on the screen. It's in your notes. When you lack wisdom for the trials that you face, watch this. Ask God deciding in advance to follow his direction. We'll unpack that idea some more. Number one in your notes today, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it generously. Ask God for wisdom and he'll give it generously. James chapter one, beginning in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. First off, this book of James, as I was studying, I was reminded, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Now, what we mean by that is we go back into the former covenant, into the Old Testament, and we see a book, we see actually a whole category of literature called wisdom literature, of which the the real kind of um, hallmark book within that is the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs consistently gives us input as to this is the wise way, this is the, the thoughtful and the healthy way to approach your life, both between you vertically and God and horizontally with others. It's such a valuable, valuable book. So James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I had forgotten about that when we started last week. And then we get into this subject today and I go, how cool. And it just makes sense. James gives all kinds of directives, all kinds of imperative verbs and says, this is how you ought to respond. This is how you ought to walk in this situation that you face. Let's remind ourselves of the context. James 1.5 doesn't come in a vacuum. It followed. Last week, we talked about, we kind of gave you this big picture, now what idea. We said, God's purpose in your pain is to develop perseverance so that you'll be prepared. Lots of P words. But it pushes on that idea that there is a purposeful reason. And as we left that, that passage, the last words of James 1.4, so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The first words of James 1, 5, the very next verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, there's the bridge. What God is saying is he's bringing 
bringing, not just allowing, not just, oh, whoops, how'd that happen? He's intentionally placing into your life painful situations so as to grow perseverance, so as to help you become mature and complete. Watch this, not lacking anything. However, if you lack wisdom in the painful thing that you're in, and you will, ask God. That's the, that's the truth. That's the truth of this passage. Ask God. And so that's how we see how last week's passage kind of connects to this week's. Before we go any further, I want to define for us today wisdom. You've found that to be true with me. I, I don't like to use phrases that I don't think we're all necessarily on the same page. So let's, let's use this. It's in your notes. Biblically, wisdom is defined as the God-given ability to judge and discern correctly and to follow the best course of action based on knowledge and understanding. Now, I really love short, simple, pithy definitions for things. You can tell this is not that, all right? This is very wordy. But I feel like wisdom has so many kind of pieces that you have to really embrace a lot to get to it. So I kind of chose a different route this week because I really want to make sure that we see it. Look at, look at what, let's unpack that definition. Number one, it's God-given. Wisdom flows from, wisdom emanates from the creator of the universe. Secondly, it's the ability to judge or discern correctly. It's being able to see the world as it is, not how you wished it would be. That's huge. To just take stock of reality, that's a huge piece to wisdom. It's the following of the best course of action. Wisdom is a decisive reality. It's an action idea. It's not the sage on the hill who just kind of thinks about big ideas all day. It interacts with the reality of your life. It hits the ground. And finally, it's based on knowledge and understanding. Um, Here's what's happened, especially in our Christian culture. We have taken this idea, we've seen the... The problem when people equate knowledge with wisdom, and I want to be clear, knowledge and wisdom are not the same, no doubt about it. You and I have interacted with people that are immensely intellectual, but cannot tie their own shoes. They're just so thoughtful and deep and precise and all those things that you and I are not, but they don't know how to live. And so we know that knowledge cannot be the equivalent of wisdom, and, and therefore the excess of it, we kind of bang on that. But I want to say, I've never met a wise person who also didn't know a lot. So knowledge and wisdom have a relationship. We just ought not to see them as synonymous. That's the big idea within that. So here's some more. I, I want to pursue on this idea before we get into the particulars of this aspect of wisdom. I want to talk about wisdom for just a moment. I want to explore that because I think it's so important. Wisdom is worth pursuing. I can't wait to do a series and just unpack the value of gaining and living according to godly wisdom because I will just tell you it revolutionizes things for you. When you will actually say, God, your ways, your understanding, your insights into the world, they matter more than anything else. And why do I say that so strongly? Why is it so important to me? Well, first off, God says it's important. I really love this. The NIV translates this passage to me so well. It's in Proverbs 4, 7. It says, the beginning of wisdom is this. This is where wisdom starts. Get it. I love that. It's so great. Other translations will translate it. Wisdom is supreme. That's great. NIV dials in. The beginning of wisdom is this. Go get it. 
get wisdom through it, or though it cost you all you have, get understanding. Man, I got to tell you, I, um, <laughs> Joanna has, uh, has been connected to me both in a dating and a married relationship for 30 years. And so you're doing the math, you're going, Todd, you looked old, but I had no idea how, no, it, we started very young. And so she has watched the, the kind of the course and the growth of my life. She has the best advantage point in the world to tell you, Todd, you have not always been in any way a wise person. She knows. Like, and if you're here today, your spouse knows that too, just in case you didn't know that, okay? My spouse knows it well. And I'm not here today, I'm some pillar of wisdom, but I'm saying I have really embraced the value of wisdom over the course of that span of my life. And one of the reasons why is, in a way, I value wisdom so much, not only because God says it's so highly important and valuable, but also because I want to walk in a way that not only pleases God, but blesses others. I don't know if you've ever thought about that aspect of wisdom. We can look at wisdom maybe very selfishly. Wisdom is the healthiest way to live. Wisdom is the way that is the most productive way to live. Wisdom is the way that has the least amount of fallout and collateral damage when you live this way. These are all true. But there's something about when I'll grab hold of this idea that to live according to God's design out of his understanding is the best way to live, not only for how it blesses my life, but it blesses everyone around me. You see, I got to walk for 14 years with a guy named Jack Hamilton, who's the executive pastor at HDC, and I just got to watch. Think of that for a moment. When I say the word wise person, like this person's very wise, get a name and get a face in your life. Who's that person that you kind of see, you know, dictionary definition, wise, there's their face. Think of that person for a minute, and Jack is the one that comes right to my mind because I've watched Jack live, and it's not to say that Jack hasn't encountered problems. That's silly. That's life on a fallen planet. We all do. It's how you navigate through them. And not just how you navigate through problems, but how, as a result of wisdom, you bless everyone around you. It's like when the harbor goes up, all the ships go with it. Wisdom provides that for the people in your life All the water rises and everyone's blessed as a result. Wisdom is something worth striving for, worth giving yourself to. It's especially cool how wisdom interacts with our series. When I was looking in a, just not in a theological dictionary, but just dictionary definitions of the word wisdom, which is kind of a trip because there's all kinds of ideas in a non-biblical context of wisdom. But one of the words I came across is a word you and I use every day. I got to say it right, disambiguation, right? Like just yesterday, you were in this conversation, oh, I'm just struggling with the disambiguation of this issue. And, um, and knowing I had to look at my notes to even remember how to say it shows that obviously we don't use this word. But when you break the word down, it's actually a cool word picture. Dis just means not, the opposite of, and then ambiguous means unclear. So it's a double negative, not unclear, Wisdom is not unclear. Otherwise said, wisdom brings clarity. The tagline for our series is clarity when you need it most. Wisdom is essential to this first chapter of James chapter 1. Wisdom is synonymous at times with clarity and the ability to proceed. Think about how wisdom also relates to your role as a parent, your role as a grandparent, and what you're trying to 
to inspire and to pass on to your kids. And, and the goal of wisdom in raising kids is simply that they would know how to navigate well. They don't know that by nature. I'll never forget the very first parenting conference that I was kind of responsible for up at HTC. I was the new family pastor, hired in October, and I think in February or March, we put on a parenting conference. So it was just within the first five or six months of being there. And in doing so, I even brought in a speaker I didn't know very well, but he was well, had a great reputation among our staff, a guy named Daniel Hahn. Daniel's a pastor up in Ventura. Daniel comes in, and we had a little bit of time in the green room before the, the conference started. He seemed like a great guy. We get out there, and there's like 350 parents in this room. And his very first words, I'm sitting, standing in the back, the very first words he says is this. What's the goal of your parenting? Are you trying to raise obedient kids or wise kids? And I sat there in the back, and I was shaking because I thought that's a horrible question. Okay, it's a horrible question. I want both. What do you mean there's one way, you know? And in my mind, I'm even thinking, I'm raising at the time, Jackson's five, Aaliyah's uh, three, and, and Kendi's six, seven months old. And so I'm thinking of my kids going, I don't have, there's no such thing as a wise three-year-old. You know, I just want obedient, do what I say. And as I was processing, it was the very next words, though, that Daniel said, and you can tell at that stage of parenting, it was very short-sighted. And Daniel laid out this idea and he said, let me give you the answer to that question. Your goal is to raise wise kids because you want to raise them not just to listen to your voice because there's going to be a point at which you're not speaking into their life anymore. They're on their own and you want them to walk according to God's voice and his wisdom. And he was so right. And as my kids are older and I see that goal being so valuable and so important, I couldn't agree more. Your goal, my goal is to raise wise kids kids. The problem is when they're three, there's nothing that looks wise at all. Okay. Now let's look at the other parts of this, this particular verse. We're not just looking at wisdom, but two aspects. One, God gives wisdom generously. And second, he does so without finding fault. First idea is this, and I want you to hear this. Don't react. Just hear it. God is liberal. Man, your head's shot up. That was good. I didn't say God is a liberal. I said God is liberal. <laughs> I know that we have politicized the words liberal and conservative, but I want you to do this. About six months ago, I was listening to something, and in the context, they use the word liberal, liberality, as it is rightly understood. It's, it's like a lot of English words means a lot of things. The word liberal means lavish. It means without restraint. It means to pour out and to give. God is a liberal God. And here's what's happened. You have actually inverted some terminology in your own mind, so have I. And we've actually become to believe that God is very conservative. Meaning, code for stingy, grumpy, holds back. And in this first part of our passage today, if you could just get this idea... This is the one you could take to the bank and that you could sit on for a, a long while in your life and just, just meditate upon, God, what is this about? Because what you've done is you come to God thinking you have to pry something out of his hand. You have to somehow do something right to magically manipulate him to give to you what you think you need because you've developed a view that God doesn't seek to bless your life. I don't know where that view came from, 
It comes at my life at times as well. It's sad to say, and I had to repent of that this week as I was studying. Because even go back to our Ephesians series. How many times did we come upon the idea, the word riches, in just the book of Ephesians alone? And it's not just that God is rich, rich. God is rich in wanting to bless and to give to you. The riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy and love. Six times that word is used in Ephesians alone. When it comes to God being after your best, God wanting to bless your socks off, God is liberal. He's not conservative. And you need to sit on that a little bit today because so many of us have adopted a different view and God is just stingy. I want to help you see that he's not. The other aspect of that second truth, he'll give without finding fault. That was a very curious phrase to me. I was trying to process that. Why would James include that? God will give generously without finding fault. And I was trying to think through, what what does that even connect this dot? And then it dawned on me. That very often, how we come to people, how we come to an authority figure, this is one of the great challenges for many of you in the room today, is that you have equated how your parents related to you on issues like this with how God relates to you on issues like this. And some of you were raised in homes that simply made you feel small, made you feel bad for even asking for help. So therefore, the understanding or the expectation is, I feel in some way I'm inconveniencing or I'm somehow asking God at an inappropriate time for the help that I need to navigate through this challenge that I'm in for wisdom. So even the very question of it, even asking for it, puts me at odds with a God who number one, I think is stingy. And then number two, I've equated with old Mr. Wilson. Right? He's the neighbor across the street who would get just as mad at me for asking for help as he would for me stepping on his lawn. God is not that God. And when we come to him, think back to the fatherly example, the motherly example we started with today. He sees his kids struggling with issues. And the moment they ask for help, rather than break his heart, the moment his heart expands. I can't wait to help. I can't wait to be a source of wisdom and direction for what you lack right now. God gives wisdom liberally and without scolding when we ask for it. The way we we phrase the first point today seems to be an axiom. It reads that way. And an axiom is a universally accepted principle. It reads, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it generously. But here's what I know. It's not an axiom or else James would have stopped with that. He would have said, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and been done. But he goes on in the next three verses to say, but you're not going to do it. So let me help you understand why this is so important. So rather than us assume we all are on the same page and, and living out this axiom, let's see what kind of disconnect James addresses. Number two in your notes, ask God for the wisdom that you've already decided to follow. Ask God for the wisdom that you've already in advance decided to follow. James 1, 6. But when you ask, when you come to God with this need, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. When you recognize that you need practical understanding, you need wisdom in a situation to know how to navigate the challenges you're facing, 
The Bible says that we can come to God in this act of trust, in this act of faith, believing he'll give generously, believing he'll give without criticism. And, and yet, in that whole mix of, of things, one thing that the Bible's going to um, demand, it's a good word, going to expect, is that you do so not putting God in a gallery of voices, but already coming ready to say, God, I'm willing to do what you show. This, to me, is the hinge of this passage today. What I have been, I've been praying for you throughout the week, been praying for our time together this morning with the worship team and with the elders. This is the hinge, is that we don't come to God and say, okay, God, I'm even willing to say, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to see it, I'm gonna ask you for help. But as I'm asking you, I'm already expecting to make it one of many voices, And I am sitting in the driver's seat saying, maybe I'll choose to do this, maybe I won't. God says, no, come to me, and when you ask, already have answered the question with yes. Already answering the directive with yes, I plan on doing this. That's why I titled the message today, Sincere Wisdom. I'm sincerely asking and expecting to put this to practice, expecting to put feet to what God would say. I've sincerely pre-decided to follow whatever directives God gives next. So here's how we arrive at that conclusion. He says, but the one who asks must believe. That Greek word is the word pistis, the word faith. It's the very same word we saw back up in chapter one, three, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Same word, this, this idea, we defined faith last week, trusting God for what I can't see. It's out there. He's taking care of it. He's going to lead me through it, but I I can't tell what it is right now. A few weeks ago, even back in our Ephesians series, we defined the word, well, we didn't define it, but we said that faith, we've often thought that the opposite of faith, we saw it as doubt, but it's not, it's sight. That's the opposite of faith. I don't need faith that I'm holding my iPad right now, okay? It's in my hands. It's in my sight. What I need faith for is that which I can't see. But today what we see is this. We see an impressive truth. We're introduced to the fact in your notes that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but it's its rival. It's its rival. Doubt is not faith's opposite, but it's rival. It is that enemy that is saying, rather than trust God with what you can't see, come already vacillating, already kind of back and forth, not really ready to commit. Faith is intended to be the singular way that we respond to God, not one of a few options that we would like to choose from. The Greek word doubt, found here in chapter 1, verse 6, it's defined as to judge thoroughly back and forth. To just thoroughly back and forth. And when you hear that word, you don't necessarily think, well, that's negative. You kind of go, huh, and it's good. That word actually, just like a word we looked at last week, can be understood positively or negatively depending on the context. Positively, we see it as the idea of that of close discernment. I don't know about you, but for Joanna and myself, when we're coming upon a, a crossroads where we need to have a, a wise answer, a wise next step, one thing that we'll often do is make a list, kind of a pro-con kind of a list. And on the one hand, we don't make that list saying that, God, we're just going to do, if it's 51% this way, 49 that way, Done. We allow God to come in and intervene the list. He can blow up our list if he has something different. But God gave you a brain. Use it. 
A lot of the counseling that I do, and, and I don't say this in any way critically, I love sitting down with people and walking through things, but often we'll get to a point in the conversation and I'll say, you know, based on these things, what do you think's the wise decision? Oh, pretty clearly X. Oh, maybe you should do X. That's part of the idea of wisdom literature and wisdom understanding. God's given us not just a brain to think logically, but a brain to be informed with scripture. So on the one hand, close discernment is positive, but the other way that this word, this Greek word could be translated is that of back and forth or vacillating. Not being able to make a decision and move forward, that's when it's used negatively. So just like in last week's message, we found very powerful the word, the Greek word for trial is also equally translated temptation. The same Greek word, the only thing that helps us know what it is, is its context. And what we found is when God is the author of it, it's a trial. When your flesh is the author of it, something we'll look at in a couple weeks, it's a temptation. So this passage, in the same way, we realize that it's not understood as close discernment. This passage, the word is understood as doubt. One is a commendable trait. The other is something that is condemnable. It's condemned because when you doubt, you vacillate. And here's the interesting thing. If I'm sitting with you and we're talking and having a conversation and you're struggling with something and you say to me, Todd, you know, what should I do? And I give you my, my understanding, I give you my input and you're vacillating with that. That's one thing, but watch this. But when you and I come to God, the maker of heaven and earth, and we say, God, I don't know what to do, but already in my spirit, I'm saying, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do what you say. That's when it's condemnable. That's a doubter. That's this kind of doubt we're talking about. Because we have to keep coming back to who are you talking to? Who are you approaching? Think of it this way. The more you get to know me, the more you'll hear stories, and I have many, of how incredibly horrible I am at all things mechanical. Bad, bad, bad. All kinds of bad. Remember, I'm the guy who told you last week, I know so much about cars, I think you ought to just be able to put gas in it and it work until the Lord comes back. I'm always perplexed. How in the world did this fall apart today? I can't get it. So imagine this. Imagine you have a problem with your car, your automobile, and you need to get to work on Monday. You come to me today and you say, Todd, I, I really don't know, you know how, what to do with my car. I don't know what to, how to fix it. Can you help me? I'm thinking just the fact you came to me says a lot about you. Okay. But secondly, so, so then I go deep, right? I start thinking about really powerful things. I go, well, let, let's, let's get, let me ask a few you know, probing questions. Is there gas in the tank? Yeah, pretty sure. Okay, good. Uh, air in the tire. Yeah, okay, air in the tires. Okay. Th- that's about the, the depth of my knowledge, right? So that's all I got. And here's the interesting thing. So you're asking me these questions about your car while I'm standing next to Bob. Bob designed your car. And you say to Bob, Bob, I've heard what Todd said, really profound. Um, wondering, though, what your take on it. And Bob says, let me ask you some diagnostic questions, blah, 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 blah. And in about five or seven minutes, Bob says, well, I'm pretty sure your problem is X. And he says, how can you be, you ask him, how can you be so sure? He said, well, I, I built your car. I designed it. I know how it works. Here's what happens when we doubt God, part of that problem, why it's so reprehensible to God is you're putting Todd and Bob on the same plane. I don't know squat about your car. Bob designed it. 
You better think about who you're talking to when you're asking for wisdom, when you're asking for input. Don't trust what I have to say about your car. Absolutely trust Bob. That's what God is saying in this passage. When you come to him, come and not doubt. Come not vacillating already. "Eh, Maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's in a gallery of opinions that I'm... No, no, no. I come to God. I'm upside down. We talked about it last week with the cones. I'm in that second stage. I've, I've given everything I had of faith. Now I'm just kind of crawling next. In those times, come to God and say, God, whatever it is, my answer is already yes. I just need to know what to do. When we approach God for the wisdom that we need in the midst of the challenging trials that we face, we come to him preloaded with the response of yes to whatever he directs simply because, watch this, because he is God. We keep in mind who we're talking to and who we're asking. See the word picture that James uses from nature. James says, the one who doubts, the one who vacillates, he is like this. He is like a wave on the sea driven back and forth by the winds. Now watch, for many of us, the only wave of the sea you've ever seen is when it crashes on the beach. That's not the type. It's the type that you've seen in movies when people are out in all kinds of craziness on storms out on the ocean. The time that come over a boat that looks like it's going to just flip you all over. That's the kind of wave that James talking about out on the open sea. And watch this. It's the wave that never arrives. It's the wave that just bounces based on the winds back and forth, but never really lands. James uses a host of beautiful, what I'll call natural illustrations, illustrations that come from the created order. I'm just going to blow through a few of them because we won't get to see all of them just because we're in the first chapter. But later in chapter one, we'll see it next week. He talks about the wild flower that fades. We'll see later on the idea that, that um, temptation is a hunting term to be dragged away and enticed like you'd hunt an animal. We'll see that bits in the, how, in the mouths of horses are trying to tame the tongue. The tongue is likened to a spark to a fire in chapter 3. Animals can be tamed by man, but tongues cannot. Freshwater, saltwater can't come from the same spring. Fig trees don't bear olives. Grapevines don't bear figs likens us to a mist in chapter 4 that appears and then is gone. The idea that farmers in chapter 5 have crops and rain produces them. All kinds of illustrations all over the book of James related back to nature. And I love that James does that because he's simply saying, you get this. You can see it. If you open your eyes, it's all around you. James sees the working of God evidenced in the world and it's designed for us to live in and to see him in it. Here's the thing. Some of you are here today and you are overly cautious. On a spectrum, some of us are very impetuous. Others of us are overly cautious. Those of you that are here that are overly cautious, you tend to have, if you'd be honest with yourself, a bit of a pride. Because those who are impetuous, you keep seeing the failures of those snap decisions. And there's many. But you, on the other hand, feel like taking it slow. Feel like saying in a lens related to God, God, I will move when you show it all to me. We've already said God doesn't do that. He at best gives you the step you're going to put down next. But in that moment of indecision, in that vacillating because you're holding out for more, here's what's happening. You are making a decision when you don't make a decision. Hear that today. Indecision is a decision. 
Rather than saying, God, you've given me the next step, though not the whole next mile, that's enough for today. Step out your foot and place it down what he's shown you. When you ask God for wisdom and you see that he reveals it to you, don't hesitate once God gives you direction to follow. And finally, number three in your notes today, ask God for wisdom because you want his plan more than yours. Ask God for wisdom today because you want his plan more than yours. James 1, 7, 8, that person, so that the doubter, we just read out in verse 6, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I gave you the definition for double-minded. It is literally someone with two spirits or two souls. That's kind of the image. That's very literally the Greek word that James uses. This word's very interesting because in the entire Bible, it's only found here in James 1 and in James 4. It's as though James coined the word because it's not found in any other Greek literature. James kind of comes up with this idea that to doubt God, the creator of the universe who's ready to give you wisdom is to be duplicitous, to have two souls, two spirits, the other place we find this is in James 4, 8. It's in, on the screen. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. What? You double-minded. Chuck Swindoll said it well. He said, a double-minded person is one who wants his or her will and at the same time as God's will. And you know, by the way, I don't mean to make this big deal. Oh, the double-minded, like none of us have ever been that. Okay, that's an everyday kind of challenge we face. But the Bible's saying pretty clearly, this is a tight wire you can't walk. To be double-minded, we say in advance when we ask God for wisdom, I'm already in. The answer's yes, just tell me, God, what the step is. So the double-mindedness is similar to the person like the illustration who's tossed back and fro from the waves. It's an unhealthy reluctance to proceed when God has communicated this way. And I understand why you struggle with being single-minded. I understand why I struggle with being single-minded because it means that ultimately, like this point says, I'm not going to get my way. I've had that happen enough times till I finally begin to grab hold of that. Here's the thing I want you to grab as we finish today. I want you to grab that your way was never the best way anyway. Take a look. Donna sent me this this week. I thought it summed it up well. This was kind of out of relation to not only last week's message, but this week as well. The top illustration definitely demonstrates what you and I want. What is that? What does that scream? It screams comfort and it screams control. Okay. I like it. I can see the path. Oh, you know, it's a really challenging, you know, 2% grade, <laughs> right? Like, oh, it's going to be tough, tough workout today. No, it's comfortable. I don't have to change my bike out of gear. I'm doing good. I can control the situation. That's what your plan is. That's what my plan is, especially when we're in trials, right? God, just get it done. Let's get over this. But look at the bottom. What I love about the picture about the bottom is look at the vantage point of the biker, not where you are and you can see. What's helpful when you can see it is you know you've lived this. You know you lived, you wanted the top, but you got the bottom, and now in retrospect, you see all those steps. But when you're the biker, all you can see is the flag at the top of the hill, and you can tell there's some dips in the road. The person who asks in faith for wisdom simply says, 
God, I know I have a plan for my life and I would like it to be comfortable and I'd like it to be controllable to me. But what I'm choosing in advance, why I'm already saying yes, is because I want a life that can only be described by your power, by your strength, by your wisdom. So I want a life that is full of faith. I want a life that knows you have said you will never leave me or forsake me. And so through all of those challenges, the key is at the top, my plan is me alone. The second is God with me. And if that's the choice, God, you bring us to this point where we realize that challenge and faith is so much more valuable than comfort and control. Why? Comfort and control was always an illusion anyway. It was never real. It brings us back today to this idea of how much we need faith, how much we have to trust God with the things that we can't see. How you have to trust him with the job that you had always wanted, that you had looked forward to and and then achieved. You're there. But now you're in this tension of doing something related to a godly ethic versus a sinful one, and you know that a lot is riding on your decision. Trust him. Trust him with your kids. That he knows better about what is going to grow and develop their character than you ever will. Trust them even with the painful things they go through because it's better than your plan for them. Trust him with your marriage. The challenges that you're facing today either towards each other or you together towards some outside force. Trust him and to quote Gary Thomas, trust him that your holiness is more important than your happiness. And what God is up to in the middle of your relationship is going to be worth it. Trust him with your purpose. That you're here to be an ambassador of Christ, an ambassador of Jesus, a a person of influence in your relational world in the way that God would want to use your life on their lives. The ways that God would want to use your prayers, like our Take 10 Trinity emphasis, the way that God would want to use those is going to be worth it to see what God ultimately does with you getting to be a part of their rescue. It's growing towards a place where it's not your circumstances that you longer fear because of the confidence that you have of the presence and the power of your good, good father. I love this quote to close today. David Livingstone, 19th century missionary to Africa. He said this, God send me anywhere. Watch this. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me and sever any tie in my heart except the tie that binds my heart to yours. When you lack wisdom for the trials you face, ask God, deciding in advance to follow his direction. Let's pray. So Father, we come to you today with this passage that is meant to be so encouraging and so helpful because God, we have lived in a place of, of sensing that we somehow can figure out, manipulate our lives best left to ourselves. Help us, God, develop within us the confidence and the trust, the faith that you know and your way is always better. God, help us to come to you looking for wisdom, already deciding we're going to say yes when we know what you say. If you're here today and and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, I just want to say that this is salvation 101. This is where it begins. It begins with you saying, God, I recognize, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I believe that Jesus is the only savior available and I choose. 
I choose to follow you with my life to simply get on board with Jesus' path. So Father, today, take these words, take your passage, your word, and help us this week live this out to your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.